Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. We are continuing our series on the Pentateuch. We are in the stories of Isaac's children, um, Jacob and Esau. And, um, you know, it's, it's common for us to think about modeling our lives after biblical characters. I think we think the Bible and all the characters are in there are worthy of our modeling. And, you know, and the New Testament uh, encourages us to imitate some of these Old Testament characters. Uh, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, encourages and instructs women to follow in the model of Sarah in regard to how they love and treat their husbands. And uh, Abraham and Isaac are held up as men of faith. But that's really what the scriptures encourage us to look at, their faith and their hope, because their actual lives are often a mess. And um, there's nothing really in their lives in terms of their actions. Uh, often is the case that there's nothing there to, to copy or imitate. If we just look at the the few men that we've looked at so far in the book of Genesis, we've got Abraham uh, and Isaac and Jacob, and a lot of what they would do would be considered adultery or immorality. Uh, the women are challenged with anxieties and fears and abuses and encourage also immorality and adultery. And so from the standpoint of how they're living their lives, um, there's not much to follow. What we have to understand is, is God is drawing a people out of idol worship. God is drawing people out of lives of sin, lives of pursuing other gods, lives of worshiping other things, much like us. So we need to see ourselves in these characters, not as, hey, they have got great character to follow and I need to be like them. We need to see that in their lives that are coming out of sin, God is training them to orient themselves to him. And uh, Jacob's story provides some great material on that. And as we've seen throughout the, the Pentateuch so far, there is this idea that God is, is asking his people to walk before him with wholeheartedness. The scriptures often translate the word as blameless, but the word really means to be complete and honest and wholehearted in their walk before God. It's not a request, it's not a command to be perfect, it's a command to being upfront, open. You have a sincere walk with God that is characterized by integrity, not hiding anything. There are mistakes, there are problems, there are sins, but God wants us to live fully before him in those things so that he can work those out of us, to be wholehearted is to have nothing to hide, to have a strong sense of God's call, mostly in the caller. Sometimes it's really unclear as to where we're going and what exactly we are to do, but our confidence is in the one who calls us, which is God. It's also characterized by energy and zeal because of a growing confidence and awareness of who the caller is, and also fruitfulness and happiness that strengthens us to persevere and to be resilient when obstacles and suffering come. And so we, that's what we want to look at today. We want to look at how is, how is God shaping Jacob to walk in a wholehearted way before him. And so the material today, so you know, we're, it's, we're spending 16 months on the Pentateuch, but it's five books. So we're covering multiple chapters each Sunday. And so what I want to do... Um, this morning is review a little bit of the story so that we're all kind of 
up to speed as in terms of the narrative. And then we're going to focus on this scene that Deirdre read from this morning. So let me pray here as we get started. Lord God, we pray that you would give us insight into your word as, the, as King David prayed. We ask that you would show us wondrous things from your word. Lord God, that we could have insight into what it means to know you and to follow you so that we may live in wholehearted ways. In your son's name we pray, amen. So last week we left Jacob running from the threat of being killed by his brother on his way to the east so that he could find a wife and escape possible being murdered. And so on the way, God reveals himself to Jacob in a dream. Up to this point, we had seen zero interaction between God and Jacob. So, so Jacob experiences God in a dream. God promises that uh, he will bring the promises of Abraham and Isaac to him and that he will possess all of this land and he will be a nation that blesses other nations. And then Jacob wakes up and he makes a vow to God and he says to God, God, if you will provide me clothes and if you will provide me food, I will follow you all of my days and give 10% of what I make. So God has basically just promised him the nations. <laughs> And he says, listen, I'm, I'll, I'll be happy. I'll be happy with the clothes on my back and food. So he, he doesn't really grasp, doesn't really grasp the scope of God's promises. Um, he continues out east. He meets Rachel, which is Laban's daughter. And Laban is the uh, brother to his mom, Rebecca. And so they wanted him to find a wife from the family. Uh, and the first day he meets her, he kisses her. He falls madly in love with Rachel uh, and then promises to work seven years to marry her. That's the, the requirement that her father uh, put on, Isaac, on Jacob. He had to work for seven years. So he works the seven years. Laban deceives him. He doesn't give Rachel for Jacob to marry. He gives Leah. Um, and then agrees to work another seven years to marry Rachel. So then Leah, the older sister, and Rachel, and their two servants basically enter into a childbirth arms race with each other. And uh, so over the course of six years, they have, he has two wives, two concubines, and 13 children. So he works another six years, and Laban keeps changing his wages, so he's there for 20 years. So he eventually leaves Laban. Um, Laban chases after the, him because Laban believes that everything Jacob has is really his. His family, his kids, all of his possessions, really, Laban sees those as his. Uh, they come to a truce, and then, and then Jacob comes upon Esau his older brother, that he deceived 20 years earlier. Hasn't seen him for 20 years. Hasn't talked to him for 20 years. Jacob is fearful that Esau is going to exact revenge for Jacob cheating him out of his birthright and his blessing. So Jacob gets to the point when he recognizes and hears that Esau is bringing 400 men to meet him 
It's like an army. Jacob comes to this point where he sees himself in desperate need. And so he prays a wholehearted prayer. And to this point in the book of Genesis, it is the most um, penitent, it's the most detailed, it's the most sincere and needy prayer that has yet been prayed. He acknowledges his need and his unworthiness, and he asks God for protection and calls on God to fulfill his promises. And then that night, in a response, God visits Jacob in the form of a human being, in the form of a man, and they have a wrestling match all night long. And the text says that God doesn't prevail in the wrestling match, but he does leave Jacob with a limp. He touches his leg, the top of his leg at his hip, and Jacob leaves with a limp. God commands Jacob to let go of him. Jacob refuses to let go of God and demands a blessing. Well, God then demands from him his name. Jacob responds, my name is Jacob. Now, Obviously, God knew his name, and Jacob isn't just a name. Jacob means the deceiver. Jacob means the cheater. Jacob means the usurper. And so God was essentially asking him at this point, Jacob, who are you? What are you? And Jacob says, I am the cheater. I am the deceiver. I am the usurper. God then changes his name, gives him a new identity. Jacob realizes after this is all over that he has seen God, and he names the place Peniel, which means the face of God. And then the next day, he leaves to meet Esau, and they embrace. They're glad to see each other, and Esau leaves him alone, and they depart in peace. So that's the story that we're covering today. And so we want to look at the transformation of Jacob over these 20 years. They began with his deception, his cheating out of his brother, of his birthright, which are all of the rights and privileges and responsibilities of the firstborn. Esau didn't want him. He's not worthy of the birthright. But either either way, Jacob is still who he is, and he took it from him, and then deceived, along with his mother, Rebekah, the father into giving him his blessing. And so Jacob's life on his own, as it's reported here, begins with deception. He's at where he's at because of deception, because of his deception. But once he gets to his family, once he meets the woman he wants to marry, once he gets to the house of Laban, it's 20 years of him being deceived of him being cheated, of him being taken advantage of. So over the course of these 20 years, it seems like he is increasingly aware of his weakness and the consequences of his deception. So he's come to this point. He's left Laban's house. He's made a truce with Laban. And he is afraid for his life. He's afraid for the life of his wives. He's afraid for the lives of his children. And he comes to this point, this night, and this is the prayer that he prays before this wrestling match with God. 
And it reflects a much more substantive understanding of who God is, of who he is, and of what God has promised him. I'm going to read it. O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of your steadfast love and all of the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude." And so it, it, you read through it, and obviously if you think, you know, you get to a place where there's, there's nowhere for Jacob and his family to go. He has split up everybody, and he is alone. He came into this land alone, and now he's alone, and he utters this prayer, and he recognizes, he recognizes, he says, I am not worthy of what you have provided for me. Now, if you, if you get into the details of the story, Jacob is an extremely hard worker. Jacob is extremely smart. He is, the commentators don't understand the text, but there's a story about his ability to breed goats and rams and sheep. And he has this extraordinary ability to do this. And he's a very successful person. He cheats people to get what he wants, and he's very hardworking and skilled at getting what he wants. He suffered cold. He suffered a lot of hardship. He took a lot of losses, but he's still very successful. But here he gets to this point where he cannot get himself out of it. He recognizes who he is. He recognizes that he is unworthy. He recognizes that he's in significant need. He recognizes the consequences of deception. Because here's his brother Esau. 400 people coming, and he's got four wives, a bunch of kids, and just a lot of sheep. He's, in, he's afraid for his life, and he sees the consequences of his deception. It seems like Jacob has developed humility. He recognizes that God has provided, not his cunning or his shrewdness or his hard work, but God, and that he is unworthy of what God has provided. He calls on God, and he calls on God's promises. It's a very different picture of the Jacob that we had from 20 years earlier. So God's response, God comes, he comes and wrestles Jacob. He brings 20 years of training, because that's what it's been. God has been training Jacob, and he brings it to a head. And God doesn't prevail in this wrestling match. Now, it's an odd, I mean, if, if you're reading through the text, and you come to it, you read the story, and you ask yourself, why wouldn't God win a wrestling match with a human being? 
It's not as if God doesn't have the power to prevail. Because God shows him his power in that he gives Jacob this limp. And and the text indicates that it seems like he's going to have this limp for the rest of his life. He doesn't walk the same anymore. So God doesn't prevail, but he shows that he is eternally powerful. And God commands Jacob to let go, and Jacob refuses. He, he refuses God's command. And instead he says, I want, I'm not going to let you go until you give me a blessing. I'm not going to, I mean, he, he understands that he's God by this point. I'm not going to stop wrestling with you, God, until you fulfill your promises to me. I'm not going to stop wrestling with you, God, until you bless me. It, it's, it's a rec- he is in a place of recognizing his deep need for God, and he's not going to let God go. That's where he's at. Well, then God asks him his name. He says, I am Jacob, again, which is a confession. And God gives him a new identity. No longer, Jacob, are you going to be known as the deceiver, as the cheater, as the usurper. You're going to be known as Israel, one who strives with God. For he is stri- he's striven with men and he has striven with God, and he has prevailed. And it's an affirmation of God's continued provision of blessing to Jacob. God, God sees that Jacob has recognized several things. His unworthiness, and he's recognized, he recognizes that, that Jacob has recognized his need for God. Two very basic things that has to come for anyone seeking after God. They're unworthy, and they're in need. And it's in Jacob's prevailing that we see the gospel. I mean, if you think about it, what, what would it have proven if God would have just, you know, smashed Jacob in the wrestling match? It would have proven that God was certainly strong enough to crush a human being, which Everybody knows, we've read the story of the flood, and God destroyed every living thing on the planet except for Noah and his family. But Jacob prevails. Jacob had long been wrestling with men. He wrestled with his brother. He wrestled with his father. He wrestled with his father-in-law. He wrestled with his wives. He's been wrestling with God this whole time as well. He didn't know it. And it wasn't Jacob's hard work or his cunning that enabled him to prevail. See, it's, it's that prayer that he gives before God comes. And, and God's wrestling match is really an answer to the prayer. We see Jacob's transformation. We see his place of humility, his recognition of his need and his recognition for his need for God. To prevail over God as we contend with him, as Jacob contended with him, to prevail over God isn't to beat God. To prevail over God 
is to enter into his mercy and into his promises. The scriptures say, Old Testament, New Testament, that God opposes the proud. God fights the proud. The obstacle in our contending with God is not God's strength. The obstacle in our contending with God is our arrogance, our deception, our elevated sense of who we are, our lack of recognizing that we need God. And that's the point where Jacob came to. I am unworthy. I am in need of God. Without him, I wouldn't have anything. Without him, I'm not going to survive tomorrow. God has been training him. The training that we enter into in life, our wrestling matches, is life. Life in a broken world as a broken human with other broken humans. This is our training. This is our wrestling match. This is what we contend with. And to the humble, God relents and stops fighting and brings you into his grace, brings you into his mercies. So what holds us back? What holds us back? What we we do see in Jacob is an orientation towards God that changes. He's a fighter. He's a hard worker. Absolutely. And he will use anything at his disposal to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. But when he gets to the end of everything that he's got control over, he keeps fighting because he's recognized that there is a God who is there for him, that has made promises to him, and recognizes that without him he can go no further. So it's, it's, it's knowledge of God and who he is. If we lack knowledge of God and who he is, if we lack knowledge of God and his promises to us, we're not going to reach out. We will come to our Esau, we will come to our army that we can't overcome, and we will go no further. And so we will continue to use devices in our lives, whether it's our cunning or our deception or our idolatries, whatever it might be. We have to be aware of who God is and what his promises are. And God has given us his word. The promises to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob and to the generations beyond have been fulfilled in us. And we are fulfilling the promises that God gave to those men through Jesus Christ and the church. The promise that God gave to to Jacob in this very text, you will be a blessing to the nations. It is the gospel that goes forth into the nations through the work of local churches that is the fulfillment of God's promises. If we are ignorant of that, we're not going to be able to participate in that. We're not going to be able to call upon God for that help when we come to the place of need, which is everywhere. That's the first thing. We can remain ignorant of God's promises and calling. The second thing, and you can see this in you can see this in Jacob's life. We can fall into the quicksand and never get out if we're just always seeing ourselves as victims. Jacob had, I mean, Jacob was an abuser and Jacob was a victim. And for 20 years he had been cheated and abused and deceived, robbed of his wages. Contracts changed. 
enduring hardship, suffering losses, and he didn't come to, but he didn't come to God and complain as a victim. He took responsibility for where he was at. It's his deception that got him where he was at. And it was the deception of others, absolutely. But that's not the card he played. He recognized his unworthiness and took responsibility for his own life. If, we continue, if, if we're just always blaming others for us being stuck, we're never going to stop being unstuck. And it seems, I mean, God acknowledges, yeah, you've striven with men, and you've striven with God, and you have prevailed. God takes it as a fact that other people and our circumstances will oppose us. God recognizes that. God also has made promises to us that we can overcome those things. See, he says, through the blood of Jesus Christ... Christ has reconciled all things to the Father in heaven and on earth through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's, it's not just the reconciling. It's not just the making peace with God of the sins that we confess. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, every infraction and transgression against the Father was addressed. The sins we have committed the sins that other people have committed, and the sins that other people have committed against us. This is one of the core teachings we have in our, in our study through Colossians that we do. It's a central teaching of the New Testament. It's what enables us to look at the sins of others against us and forgive them because God has provided forgiveness through Jesus Christ. God has promised overcoming of our own sins and the sins of others against us through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is what that means. To claim that somebody else's sins against us, to claim that our own sins are what holds us back, is to deny the gospel. Is to deny the gospel. We are not victims of ourselves. We are not victims of others. Yeah, we have been sinned. We've sinned and we've been sinned against. But in the promises of God through Jesus Christ, they are not to hold us back from being wholehearted. When we recognize sin in our lives, when we recognize that we've come to an obstacle that we can't overcome, when we recognize that people are hurting and fighting against us, when we see shame in our lives, shame because of what we've done or shame for what others have done against us, it presses us to hide. And that's not wholehearted living. Wholehearted living before God, blamelessness before God is, is coming to him and saying, God, here is what I am facing, and I need your help. We also, the third thing that can keep us back is that we continue to see that we in and of ourselves are sufficient. Now, some of us are like Jacob. There are people that have the personalities and the gifts and capacities to work hard and long and be fruitful for a long time. And there are some with lesser capacities. But regardless of where you were at on that continuum, we all come to the point where Jacob came to. We, we will face an army that we can't overcome. Jacob could do nothing against an army of 400 people with his small family and thousands of sheep. 
regardless of how sufficient and capable we think we are, we will come to a point where we will recognize that in and of ourselves, we can't do it. A wholehearted approach to that point is, like I've been saying, God, I need your help. I am unworthy. I have sinned. I have been sinned against. I am at the end of my rope, and I need your help. If we, if we just keep fighting, just keep working, keep hiding back in shame, we're never going to come to that place, place because what happens is that we get into this loop of thinking that, okay, if I just do this, this, and that, I can get there. Even, even when we have failed many times, um, we, we still have this thought, if, if, if I, I just need to do this, or if I just change that. And what it is, it's, it's saying that um, I don't want to take the righteousness of God that God has for me through Jesus. Because another aspect of this is claiming the new identity. He gave Jacob a new identity because Jacob's no longer the, the cheater, the usurper, the deceiver. Jacob is now one who strives with God and prevails. When we come to know Jesus Christ, or the promise of Jesus Christ for those who believe in him, is that they will have a new righteousness, a new identity. They can have a new name. But we often get into these loops because we really would like to think that we are righteous in, in and of ourselves. And sometimes we actually believe, and this is, an, this is where ignorance of the gospel or ignorance of God and ignorance of his promises comes in. We, we think that, 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 or we feel, a lot of times it's just feelings and thoughts. I've got to get myself to a point where I'm good enough so I can face God without shame. We can live that way for years. It's at that point we've got to say, okay, it's, it's impossible for me to be good enough. It's impossible for me to be righteous. It's impossible for me to lay a new identity, to claim a new identity for myself. I am insufficient and I need the Lord. Sometimes we just fail to contend. Disbelief. Disbelief. It is impossible for an unbeliever, it is impossible for someone that doesn't know God through Jesus Christ to live wholeheartedly. This is really the point in, in Tim Keller's book that I'm going to increasingly be promoting because I'm going to try to do another meetup group in, this, in, the, in the winter. His argument in making sense of God is that, you know, there's, there's no way to prove that God exists. There's no way to prove that God doesn't exist. Scientifically, it's not possible to prove either way. But his argument is that the resources of disbelief, God doesn't exist. I don't find my identity through Jesus Christ. Me as a natural human being can live the fullness, to li can live a full life. Keller's argument is that it's not true. If we're in search of a new identity, one where we can think of ourselves as a good person, because who doesn't want to think that? 
we all want to think of ourselves as a good person. We can't do it. We can't do it unless we are made a new person, given a new identity in Jesus. Meaning, purpose, happiness, the ability to persevere and not let suffering overcome. His argument is that that Christianity provides the maximum amount of resources to bring about a wholehearted living in this world where our heart's desires are fulfilled. And from my conversations and observations of people in the world, people that don't know the Lord, people that do know the Lord, I would agree with that. Disbelief will not give you a wholehearted life. The last one, the last one is remaining alone. Jacob was alone when he went into the desert and first met God. And Jacob was alone when he prayed this prayer. He had sent off his family. He was alone. But we're not. We're not. The family that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob has materialized. It materialized initially in the people of Israel, but now it is materialized in the church. And the church is the fullness of the promise. The church is the fullness of the promise that God gave. I will make you a nation, and as a nation, you will bless the nations of the earth. That is the church. That is the kingdom of God. That is us. Wholeheartedness before God is wholeheartedness before the church family. If we can't be wholehearted with each other, we can't be wholehearted with God. See, the Spirit indwells us. The Scriptures teach that that upon faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit came into us and baptized us into the Father and into the Son, but then also into the body of Christ. And so the Spirit is in the body. And if we can't be wholehearted with the body, then we're not being wholehearted with the Spirit. And if we're not wholehearted with the Spirit, then we're not wholehearted with the Son and with the Father as well. We live our lives before God with each other. And we participate in this wholehearted living. We give, we receive, we confess, we hear confession. God has given us to each other so that we can be wholehearted together, and then together in our wholehearted, distinct lives in this world, bless the peoples of the world that don't know him. It is is the quality of our lives. It is the confidence that we have with God. It is the happiness and the fruitfulness in our lives that gives us credibility in the world. To preach the gospel and not have a life that reflects the gospel is to undermine the gospel. And God has given us to each other in order to exist and participate in that calling that God has had for thousands of years and we first see here in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We're never called to be like Jacob or to be like Abraham or to be like Isaac or Sarah, or Rebecca, or Rachel and Leah. But we're called to look into their lives and to see how they, they move from being idol worshipers, self-sufficient, selfish, unconcerned about the things of God, into people who walked wholeheartedly before God in faith because they believed in him. And that's the opportunity that we have in Christ to live in a wholehearted way 
once we acknowledge that we are unworthy and that God's promises are for us and we grab hold of him and say, God, I am not letting go until I experience your blessing. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for this, uh, the beautiful text, the working of the narrative, the promise of the gospel in it. God, thank you for Jacob prevailing. Thank you, God, that we prevail, that Christ became the victim so that we wouldn't have to, that Christ died at the hands of evil and sin so that we wouldn't have to. God, thank you for not winning so that we could win. God, our prayers that you would continue to strengthen us as a church and that you would draw us closer to you wherever any of us are at in here today, Lord God, we pray that you would draw us to know you and your promises in a more rich way and to enter into lives with each other as your church and to fulfill these promises that you have so that we may be a blessing to the people around us. In your son's name we pray, amen.